Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible blessing it is to know that your mercy in Christ is greater than all of our sins. Father, we we throw ourselves at the foot of the cross today knowing that we have no virtue of our own, we have no merit of our own, that, Lord, we have no hope apart from Christ and Him crucified. And so, Lord, I pray that today that our hope would be found fully in Him. Lord, we confess to You that we are sinners, that we do not obey your word, that we do not love you in the way that we are commanded to do in Scripture. And yet, Lord, you freely forgive us, and for that we rejoice. Father, we offer this gathering to you as an act of worship, as a a spiritual offering. Lord, I pray that these songs, that these prayers, that this offering, that our message this morning, Lord, that all of these things would be pleasing to You. Not because, Lord, that they earn us anything, Father, but because You are worthy of our obedience and of our praise. And so, Lord, we bring these things to you humbly because you are good. Father, there are those among us today that are hurting, that are dealing with sickness and pain, that are suffering through grief. Lord, we pray for them. We offer hope to them in Christ that you have given to us. And Lord, we pray that you would bring them comfort. We pray this specifically, Lord, for the Kenworthy family and for the Graves family today as they are both grieving losses of those who are dear to them. Help them, Lord, to grieve as those with hope. Because Christ is our hope. Father, as we come to your word today, as we examine the scriptures, I pray, Lord, that we would come to them with humility. That we would come to them submitting ourselves to truth rather than seeking to justify ourselves. That, Lord, we would submit fully to what your word commands. Bless this time. And bless your people, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please turn, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to be in verse 13 today. Verse 13. As we continue our series through the book of Exodus, I want to make you aware of a little bit of a detour that's coming up. And I told you about it at the very beginning, but it's coming soon. 
After we finish the Ten Commandments in a few weeks, we are going to have one more sermon from Exodus, and then we're going to take a little bit of a detour because before we get into the back half of Exodus, which deals with a lot of the Mosaic law, I want for us to have an understanding as a whole church of what it means to understand the difference between the law and the gospel. And we're going to look at how the law was the first real church conflict after in the New Testament, and then we're going to walk through the book of Galatians together before we come back into Exodus. And so that's just a little peek at what's ahead. If you grabbed one of our sermon calendars from the back table that came out last week for the third quarter of this year, you'll see that we're kind of diverting off from Exodus, and that's why. But today, we continue in Exodus with the sixth commandment. The sixth commandment is one of the most well-known sentences in all of Scripture. Christians and non-Christians alike know of the prohibition against murder that the Lord has given. At the same time, the sixth commandment is also one of the most misunderstood and misrepresented verses of Scripture. Everything from pacifism to veganism has been wrongly attributed to this command. In reality, the commandment that we will study this morning gives us both a narrow command to not take the life of a human being without it being sanctioned by God, as well as a broad command to consider the image of God in our relationships with other people. So with that being said, let's take a look at the sixth commandment in Exodus 20, verse 13, where we will first consider the reality that this commandment tells us that there can be no unjust taking of life. If you got a sermon listening guide or picked up a bulletin when you came in, you'll see that we have two points this morning, and that is our first one, no unjust taking of life. So let's read together Exodus 20, verse 13, which says this, You shall not murder. You shall not murder. In reading the sixth commandment, it is obviously simple and to the point. In fact, it is even shorter in Hebrew. Just two words. Lo ratzak, which literally means no murder. The commands up till now have been a little bit more wordy in their construction, but when the Lord gets to the sixth commandment, he just says no murder. No murder. So the end of the sermon, right? We can all go home? Nice try. The abbreviated nature of this command, along with the subject matter of it, obviously lead us to the question, doesn't this go without saying? Doesn't it go without saying that we should not murder? In fact, if we were to go door-to-door surveying people in the community and asking them the question, is murder wrong? We would likely receive a unanimous response of, yes, murder is wrong. Regardless of their religious background, their cultural background, they would likely say, yes, murder is, in fact, wrong. But when we go a little deeper and ask the necessary question, why is murder wrong? The answers would likely boil down to some form of 
Well, well it, it, it just is. It just is. Because the truth of the matter is, unless your morals and ethics are built upon God's word, you don't really have a foundation for why those things are good and right and moral. If you're just going off of what you know to be true, your morality is essentially built out from yourself, which is why we see so many different forms of immorality now being talked of as though they are moral. And to disagree with these forms of immorality is now seen as immoral because their morality was not built upon the unshakable foundation of the Lord's word. It was built upon something else entirely. And so when we think about the prohibition against murder, as Christians, we understand that the foundational reason that murder is wrong is that God made humanity in his image. If you go back to the creation of mankind in Genesis 1 and 2, you find the Lord expressing that he created man and woman, male and female, in his image. What that means is not that we look like God, because God has no form, he is not visible, but what it does mean for us, what it does mean, not for us, but for everyone, is that human beings were created to represent God to all of creation. That is why you find throughout Scripture, particularly in Genesis, you find these commands for mankind to have dominion over the earth, to have dominion over the ground, to have dominion over the plants and the animals and all of those things. That's why, because we are to represent the Lord. We are in a very, very specific and limited sense, like little gods. We are his representatives. And I want to make really clear, this is true of every single human being. It does not matter their race. It does not matter their age. It does not matter their level of healthiness or the amount of burden that they may be to anyone else. Every life is precious because every human being is made in God's image. There is no person who is not made in God's image and therefore their life is somehow less precious or meaningful or worthy of protection than yours. As we have stated repeatedly through our series throughout the Ten Commandments, these are commands that express morality. The Ten Commandments are the summation of God's moral law. And as such, the Ten Commandments are forever binding. Morals are an outgrowth of God's character. God's character does not change. Therefore, morals do not change. And therefore, God's moral commands do not end. What that means is that these commands were not thrust upon humanity here at Mount Sinai, but have always existed and have been written upon our heart since creation. That's really important for us to understand. 
The Ten Commandments were not something that Moses invented as a way to say, here's how you become good people. The Ten Commandments, God's moral law, has always existed, even since creation. Consider, for example, when the first murder occurred in Genesis chapter 4, Adam and Eve's son Cain killed his brother Abel. And when confronted by the Lord who said, where is your brother Abel? Cain didn't say, oh, I killed him. That's okay, right? Cain attempted to hide what he had done by saying, am I my brother's keeper? Even before the law was given, even before the Lord told him, hey, killing people is wrong, Cain knew that killing his brother was wrong. And that is why he didn't outright say to the Lord, I killed Abel. He said, I'm not my brother's keeper. Also, after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, the Lord, in giving instruction to Moses and his family to go out to multiply and fill the earth, he also gives them permission to eat meat at that point. One of the things he specifically tells them is that murder is forbidden. So long before the law was given here to Israel, the law was given to the last remaining family after the Lord wiped out most of creation. He said to them, do not murder. In order for us to rightly understand what the sixth sixth commandment truly commands, we must first understand what the sixth commandment does not command. Because there are specific types of killing that are not forbidden by Scripture. One of the things that has happened is that because the King James Version in particular chose to translate this verse as you shall not kill, people have taken that to mean all forms of taking of human life are thus morally wrong. But that is not true when held up against the scrutiny of the remainder of Scripture. And so there are three specific things that I want to highlight that the Lord does allow even including when you think about the Sixth Commandment. The first one is capital punishment. Capital punishment, where the state or someone executes someone who has committed a crime, in in this case, particularly murder. Going back to the example that we just used of murder being forbidden after the flood, but before the law, look at what we find alongside that prohibition. In Genesis 9, 5 and 6, this is what we find. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. When a person's life is taken without justification... The penalty for that is for their own life to be taken. And the reason for this is because man bears the image of God. That's straight from the mouth of God itself. God himself, he says, you shall not murder. And if you do, you will also be killed because man is made in the image of God. To take the life of another human being unjustly is to do violence against the image of God in creation. Now, 
in the Old Testament context, this was something that was carried out usually by someone within the family. That's usually how this worked. However, in the New Testament context, we rightly understand that the taking of life in capital punishment is no longer something that is given to us as individuals. It is also something that is not given to the church. It is given to the state. In Romans 13, 4, we find this. Paul says, but if you do wrong, be afraid, speaking of the, the rulers of the age. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So one of the roles of government that, that the Lord has ordained is that government carries out capital punishment for capital crimes. Now, there are legitimate discussions that we can have about how a system of capital punishment can be safeguarded to ensure the true guilt of those who face such a consequence. I think it's good and right to make sure that people who face capital punishment are truly guilty of the crimes they're accused of as best as we can. But to reject capital punishment altogether is to reject God's design for creation. And I don't say that lightly. I'm not saying we should go around willy-nilly and everybody who murders someone, we should just take them out. But I'm saying we need to rightly understand what God's word does and does not say as it relates to the taking of human life. And the reason why the Lord gives allowances for capital punishment is because he takes murder so seriously. And we should as well. Another type of killing that is not forbidden in Scripture is self-defense. Self-defense is allowed for. The Scriptures give us allowance to defend ourselves, our families, and our homes. In Exodus 22, verses 2 and 3, we find this. If a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, if you have no choice but to kill in order to defend yourself, you have that freedom. You have that freedom. But if it is apparent that that killing was unnecessary, then you are guilty of violating the sixth commandment. That's what it means in verse 3 where it says, if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. In other words, what this passage is saying is if someone is breaking in and you don't know what their intentions are and you try to fight back and you kill them, you are not guilty of murder. But if it is apparent what their intentions are, if it is apparent that their murder is unnecessary and you kill them, you are guilty of violating the sixth commandment. So to put this in very practical terms, tonight, if someone breaks into your home, and to defend yourself and your family, you kill them, you are justified in doing so. However, if you come around the corner with a gun in your hand and they take off running out the door and you take aim and shoot them in the back as they flee, you are guilty. Do you see the difference there? Defending yourself is not the same as vengeance. Vengeance belongs to the state. So we are allowed to defend ourselves. 
A third thing that is allowed for under the sixth commandment, is not forbidden, is just war. Just war. As I said in the introduction, there are some who have used the sixth commandment and the mistranslation of it as you shall not kill as a justification for pacifism. To say all war is wrong, you cannot be a Christian and be in the military, you cannot be in the Christian and fight in battles. But it should be easily apparent to us just from reading scripture that war is not forbidden by the sixth commandment. Consider the fact that the Lord uses Israel as the instrument of his judgment upon the nations throughout the Old Testament by sending them to war. God would not command his people to violate the sixth commandment. And so it is easily apparent to us that war, just war, is allowed for under the sixth commandment. Further, despite having several recorded interactions between leaders of the church and even Jesus himself with soldiers, there are no instances of any soldiers being told that they must leave their positions in order to follow Jesus. We don't find that anywhere in the New Testament. We never find Paul or Jesus or any of the apostles telling a soldier, if you're going to follow after Jesus, you got to quit the army. We never find that. Well, why wouldn't we? If it's wrong to be a soldier, to go to war, then we should have seen them saying, in order to properly follow Jesus, you must abandon this profession. But we don't. Just war is allowed for. Now, we have to rightly understand that when we sign up as members of the military, that we may be called upon to fight in conflicts that are unjust. And we as Christians must be willing to face the consequences of refusing to fight in a war that is unjust. If given commands that are unjust, you should disobey them. If called to go fight in a war that is unjust, you should refuse. War in and of itself is not a violation of the sixth commandment, but unjust war is. So with those things in mind, as things that are allowed under the sixth commandment, what is it that the sixth commandment does forbid? Well, what the sixth commandment has in view is, number one, intentional murder. Intentional murder. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, and I won't read there, but I'll just tell you, what we find there is we find some regulations regarding something called cities of refuge. And the idea behind these cities of refuge is that there are certain cities throughout the nation of Israel that if someone accidentally kills someone else, they can flee to these cities of refuge and they will be protected from vengeance. That's the idea. But it only applies if it's true accidental murder. It gives the example in Deuteronomy 19 of someone going out into the forest to cut down a tree. And while you're cutting down the tree, the head flies off of your axe and strikes someone else and kills them. That is an absolute accident. You did not intentionally cause the head to fly off of your axe and do that. Honestly, if you could make that happen, that would be pretty impressive. Okay, but it's, it's clearly an accidental, unintentional killing. 
And in Deuteronomy 19, the marker of what makes a killing intentional or not is not what you might think. It doesn't go into, let's consider their state of mind. Let's see if they made plans. You know what it says? It says that the marker of whether or not a killing was accidental or intentional is whether or not the killer hated the person who was killed, either at that time or at any time in the past. So in other words, if you're out in the woods and the, the head of your axe flies off and hits your neighbor and kills him, and 12 years ago, your neighbor and you had a conflict over the border between your property, and it was known around town that you really hated that guy. Well, guess what? Nobody's going to believe your story. And if you make it to a city of refuge, and evidence is presented that you hated your neighbor, it's going to be widely known that the killing was intentional. And that the whole axe head flying off story was just something you made up. And so that's the marker of whether or not a killing was intentional. Was whether or not they had ever hated the person who they killed. That should give us a tremendous amount of pause when we think about how to rightly understand intentional murder. Another thing that the Sixth Commandment has in view that you may not have thought about is the idea of reckless or negligent homicide. It's not just about whether or not you struck someone, with, struck someone with intent to kill them. It's also about whether or not you acted in ways to preserve life. Consider what we find in the following two passages. In Deuteronomy 22.8, we find a building code of sorts. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. So the idea here is you have this house, and in this day, they didn't have air conditioning. Whew, what a rough life. And so at night, their roofs were typically flat, and you would have access to them from inside the house or even from outside the house. And the idea was you would go out on the roof at night in the cool air to cool off. And because they were commanded to be hospitable to strangers who were passing through, the person who was on your roof at night might have never been up there before. And in the dark, they might not know where the boundaries are. And so they were commanded to essentially build a barricade around this to prevent people from falling off and dying. And we're told there in Deuteronomy 22.8, if you don't do this, and someone falls and dies, guess what? You are guilty of murder. Blood guilt is upon your house. Now that's not intentional. But it's, it's negligence. It's recklessness. We also find in Exodus 21, 28, and 29, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned, and its flesh shall not be eaten. But the owner of the ox shall not be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner shall also be put to death. So what we find there is if you have an animal and it uses an ox as an example, but this goes for any animal. If you have an animal that gets out 
and kills someone, you're not liable if it's an accident. But if this animal has a history of this sort of behavior and you don't properly secure it, or ultimately you didn't follow the Lord's command, if the ox gets out and kills someone, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to put it to death. And so if you have not done what you needed to do to prevent this situation, this circumstance, you are then guilty of murder. In both of these situations, the deadly circumstances should be recognized ahead of time and be mitigated. Now, we don't really live in an age where people go out on their roofs, okay? But consider something like a swimming pool. You should make sure that you take steps to secure your pool. And I know that some people think, oh, this is silly. Why should I have to secure my pool when the neighbor kids are going to jump in it and they'll, they drown and that's somehow my fault? Well, I think the Bible very plainly tells us here that that would be your fault. You have not taken the proper steps to make sure. Now, if someone built the parapet around their roof and somebody tried to stand up on top of it and they fell off, well, that's not your fault. They were reckless. In the same way, if you have a swimming pool and you properly secure it, somebody jumps over the fence and they get into your pool and they drown, you're not liable for that. You did what was necessary to prevent this situation from happening. We cannot foresee every circumstance. This also comes into play with the types of pets that we have. We need to be mindful of these things. We must take steps to preserve life. And that leads us into the next thing that we're going to discuss. And that is that the sixth commandment is a command for all of life. That's our second point this morning. A command for all of life. When we understand what the Sixth Commandment does and does not speak of, we should rightly recognize that this is a command that has far-reaching effects because of the image of God in mankind. Ultimately, we must endeavor to protect life wherever possible. If there is anything that we can do that protects life, we should try to do it. And this means that there are aspects of the Sixth Commandment and its effects that are particularly relevant within our culture today. And I want to talk about two of them specifically. The first one being abortion. Abortion is a grievous evil that is more horrific than every other genocide that the world has ever seen put together. In the United States alone, since 1973, more than 64 million children have been murdered by abortion. 64 million! And I want you to hear me really clearly. Those are children, and it is murder. It's not health care, it's not bodily autonomy, it's murder. In Psalm 139.13, it says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Some people claim that the Bible doesn't speak about whether or not a life in the womb is really a person. That's a lie. That's an absolute lie. In Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25, we find this. 
When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall, be, shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Right here in the law of Moses, we are told that doing harm to an unborn child through doing violence to their mother means that you are guilty of murder and you will pay the penalty for that. Whatever harm you do, you are guilty of that. And so if your harm that you did caused the baby to lose an eye, well, you lose an eye too. All the way up to if your harm caused the baby to die, then you also die because you're guilty of murder. And so don't say, don't believe people who tell you, well, the Bible doesn't talk about abortion. That's a lie. To live in and under the authority of God's moral law in the sixth commandment, we must fight to end abortion. We must fight to end abortion. By God's good grace, last year we saw the end of Roe v. Wade. Praise the Lord. But abortion remains. In fact, last year there was a law set to be passed in the state of Louisiana that would outlaw abortion across the board. And it failed. There are still abortions in Louisiana at this very moment. And in order for us to say we, we work to preserve life in accordance with the sixth commandment, we must fight against this. The other thing I want to speak about is euthanasia. Euthanasia is the term for helping someone die. It's usually linked to either someone being very elderly or someone having a terminal illness or sometimes someone who is infirm and unable to care for themselves. I want to be really clear from the start. A person declining treatment is not the same thing as euthanasia. We are under no obligation to prolong our life through medical treatments if that is not what we desire. Now, there's nuance there, okay? I have young children, and so if I am diagnosed with an illness, it would be wrong for me to say, well, I don't want to take chemo, so I'm just going to die. That would be wrong of me. But for someone who no longer has those sorts of responsibilities, if they genuinely feel as though they've lived a long, fruitful life, and this is the Lord's time to call them home, it is okay for them to choose to not take treatment. We are not bound to artificially prolong our lives. But that's a different discussion than actively ending your own life. The idea of assisted suicide or euthanasia is not new, but it has increasingly gained traction across the world. In fact, 11 states in our country allow for doctors to prescribe drugs for someone to end their own life. 
active euthanasia, where the doctor actively administers those drugs, is still against the law. But there are 11 states that allow doctors to prescribe you medications that will kill you. And you can go to the pharmacy and pick them up and not tell anyone and go home and take them and die. Taking your own life in and of itself is a violation of the sixth commandment. But we are entering into new territory with euthanasia, which essentially says that some people are especially burdensome and we should just get rid of them. Maybe they're too old. Maybe they're too sick. But either way, they're too much of a burden and we should just kill them. That's what euthanasia says. And that's the inescapable end to this discussion. It will move from a possibility for some to an inevitability for all. Because if the choice is between paying for expensive treatments or a much cheaper suicide pill, which one do you think the government is going to do? And if you think that I'm being overly dramatic, this is happening in countries in Europe right now. We're seeing reports of it happening in Canada where the Canadian health organization that's run by the federal government of Canada is starting to say, well, look, you're old and you're very sick and the treatments to make you continue to live are very expensive. So don't you think maybe you ought to consider this cheaper alternative? Don't you think maybe you ought to just say it would be easier on everybody if you just died? This is wicked. This is evil. All life is precious. And because of that, we should defend the lives of everyone from the womb all the way through life, no matter how ill or infirm they may be, because all of us bear the image of God for the entirety of our lives. We touched on this last week in our sermon on the fifth commandment, where we talked about how one of the ways that we honor our father and mother is by caring for them when they are old and can no longer care for themselves. And one of the ways that the world is trying to twist this concept of assisted suicide is they're trying to say, this is compassionate. This is compassionate. Don't you want to end their suffering? Don't you want to let them go peacefully? It is not compassion to say that some lives are worthy of being snuffed out. That is not compassion. That is evil. And so as Christians, we must reject abortion. We must reject euthanasia. And we must, uh, we must reject all unjust taking of life in between. The sixth commandment calls for us to defend all of life from its, from its conception to its natural end and to do so actively, not just passively. It's not enough for you to say, well, I've never killed anybody. We must actively fight against these injustices. But there's even more for us to consider. In fact, Jesus reshapes our understanding of the sixth commandment entirely in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, we find this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. 
But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus takes the commandment that we all probably feel the best about following and reveals it to be one that we break constantly. Every one of us in this room could probably say, honestly, I've never murdered anyone. But then when you take the words of Jesus into consideration, Jesus says, actually, if you have so much as been angry with another human being, you are guilty of murder. Our anger is on the same level as murdering someone else because our anger is usually not justified. And it is murder within our heart. The only time that we see Jesus angry, the only time that we see Jesus angry, it is not when he is mistreated wrongly. It's not when he is beaten. It's not when he is spit upon. It's not when he is mocked. It's not when he is crucified. The only time we see Jesus angry is when people are taking advantage of others in the name of God. It's when people are portraying as worshipful their greed and lust for gain. The only time we see Jesus angry is when people are blaspheming his father. And so as Christians, we should take our cues from Jesus and recognize that the only times that we should be angry are when people blaspheme our Father. I am angry at abortion. I am angry at euthanasia. Do you know why? Because they blaspheme our Father. They say that those unborn children, that those elderly people, those sick people are not really made in the image of God. They are somehow less. That is when anger is justified. And even further than that, Jesus gives us an illustration that not only tells us that we should deal with our own anger, but that we are to actively work to reconcile with those who are angry with us. The next couple of verses in Matthew 5 say this, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus doesn't say, hey, when you're angry with people, you need to go make it right. Because that goes without saying. He says, hey, if people have something against you, you need to go and work at reconciliation with them. That is a heavy command. That is a heavy command. Because do you know what it requires of us? It requires us being humble. It requires us being vulnerable. It requires us going to someone and saying, I know that you have been hurt by me and I want to make it right. Rather than saying, but I'm totally justified in my actions. I'm in the right. 
Brothers and sisters, that may, that may very well be. You very well may be in the right, but you are still called to actively pursue reconciliation, even with those who are angry at you. In order to truly follow the sixth commandment, we must not murder, and we must not murder within our heart, and we must actively seek reconciliation. And this is an extraordinarily tall order. How could we ever possibly hope to keep this commandment? How could we ever do that? Because all of us are guilty of being angry with our brothers from the moment we are little children. And if we don't keep this commandment, Jesus says that we will never get out until we have paid the last penny. The wrath of God is fully upon us in our anger toward our brothers as violators of the sixth commandment, as murderers. So where do we find hope? This is what God's word means when it tells us that the law is a burden upon us. Because in order to be right with God, you must perfectly keep the law from the moment you are conceived until the moment you draw your last breath. And here we find in the sixth commandment something that is utterly impossible for us to do. It's not any more impossible than the other commandments. But it is one that Jesus specifically says, you think you're righteous here and you're not. So where do we find hope? We find hope in the one who has perfectly loved not only his family and friends, but also his enemies. Because you and I were once counted among those enemies until by God's grace we were saved through faith. Jesus Christ perfectly obeyed every bit of God's law for us. And he died on the cross for us to forgive us of our sin. And if you're here today and you don't know that forgiveness and you recognize that you are, as God's word said, a murderer in your heart, you too can be saved by Christ, the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. And for those of us who are in Christ, who know his forgiveness, the call upon our lives is to love him and to throw ourselves upon his mercy again and again and again as we strive to obey his law. Not because we earn favor, but because we love him. How can we hate other humans who are made in the image of God and say we love our Savior? How can we do that? We cannot. So the call upon us Christians is to love, to love every person, no matter how small, no matter how old, no matter how healthy, no matter how sick, we love all of them because every single one bears the image of God. Let us keep the sixth commandment by actively defending life and loving our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, for the ways that you 
Use it to change us and to shape us and to mold us. And Lord, I pray today that we would be people who love life. That, Father, in all things, we would defend those who are made in your image. That we would actively seek to love our neighbors. And, Father, we would not give license to anger and bitterness in our hearts. But that we would love you by loving them. Help us, Lord. And Lord, for those who are here who do not know forgiveness in Christ, who are condemned already because of their sin, I pray, Lord, that you, by the work of your Spirit, would draw them to life today. We pray this in Christ's name.